We all want to be agile and tackle the obstacles in front of us and get out of our own ways. On today's episode, four steps that will help you to get unstuck and embrace change. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 297. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And speaking of practical wisdom, that's going to be one of the big things we're going to zero in on today. I'm so glad to introduce you to today's guest because she's going to really help us to get unstuck and embrace change, which is something that, of course, we all need to do as human beings and even more so as leaders, is not only being able to do that for ourselves, but also being able to do that for others. And I'm really glad to welcome Susan David to the show. Susan is a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, and she's the co-founder and co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital and the CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology. Susan has worked with the senior leadership of hundreds of major organizations, including the United Nations, Ernst & Young, and the World Economic Forum. And her work has been featured in numerous publications that you'll recognize, Harvard Business Review, Time, Fast Company, and the Wall Street Journal. She is the author of the best-selling book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. Susan, I'm so glad to meet you. We're going to get everyone unstuck today, right? Absolutely. I'm so grateful to be here. Oh, I am so grateful for you. And by the way, congratulations. I know your book just went up on the uh, number one on the Wall Street Journal within the last few weeks here. Congratulations on uh, such a such a great showing. Thank you. It's been very exciting. Well, I uh, was really excited for our conversation today, and I was learning a bit about your background. And I discovered that you had to navigate some difficult situations as a young person. And I think it really relates to what you're teaching in the book. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your background and what you what you went through when you were younger and how that uh, how that's influencing some of what's showing up in the book. Absolutely. And that's a good place to start. So emotional agility really focuses on a key question. And that is, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and even the stories that we tell ourselves that enable us to thrive. Because how we deal with our inner world impacts everything. It impacts how we lead, how we come to work, the careers that we take on, and really all aspects of how we live, love, parent, and bring ourselves to the world. So I first became interested in this question when I grew up in apartheid South Africa. And while I was a white South African and therefore not subject to the same chaos and cruelty as so many of my friends, it was nonetheless a time of great complexity. So to give your listeners a sense of the context, when I was growing up, your chance as a female of being raped was higher than your average chance of learning how to read and write. Oh, wow. So it was a very, very you know, chaotic, difficult time for many, many people. And from a very early age, I became interested in this question. You know, what does it take internally to deal with a world that is, as so many of your listeners experience, chaotic, complex, ambiguous, stressful, and the list goes on. 
So I, from a very early age, was interested in these kind of questions. And then when I was uh, 16 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he was given months to live. And I had an experience that I think so many people, no matter what walk of life they're in, no matter what leadership role they're in, no matter what organization they're in, I had an experience that really started to cause me to question so much of the narrative that we have in society. So it was this. On the one hand, uh, my, you know, my father was dying and I had all these people coming to me saying to me, just get on with it, just be positive, everything's going to be okay, just focus on your goals and almost trying to avoid some of the conversation that was a really important conversation about what was going on in my life. And then I had this absolutely remarkable English teacher. And this woman knew what was going on for me. And she invited me and the rest of the class to keep journals. And so began this secret silent correspondence with this remarkable woman, where every day I would talk about what I was going through, my regrets, my losses, my pain, my heartache. And I would hand in this black journal, I've still got this book, and she would come back to me with questions and comments and poetry and, you know, really having seen me in the pages of this journal. And so that actually ultimately became the catalyst of my entire career. What I realized was that while we all live in this narrative, which is just get on with things, just be positive, just be happy that true resilience and true thriving often comes about in the opposite, in being able to show up to difficult experiences and to navigate those and to really kind of think through who we want to be. And so, yes, yeah, so that, that became the catalyst of my entire career. I became an emotions researcher and did you know, my PhD in the area and a postdoc. And so really trying to kind of think through and help people to think about how do you deal with the world, not as you want it to be, which is, you know, this perfect, never changing, you know, potentially way of being, but rather the world as it is, which is often stressful, often difficult, and where life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. Mm, wow. Uh, you know, I was thinking as you were speaking, Susan, that on one hand, it was thinking, you know, what a difficult time you went through in not only the environment, but the situation with your father when you were growing up and and thinking about you know, how difficult that must have been. And I was also thinking of how grateful I was to have grown up in the place I did and have such wonderful experiences and to not have gone through some of those challenges. And and, and at the same time, I was holding the thought of, you know, in some ways, there's there's a lot of benefit that can come from going through those experiences, as you mentioned. And we do have this tendency in our society to want to kind of patch things up, cover things up and and fix things really quickly when there's discomfort or there's pain. And I know that's one of the things you talk about in the book is that you know, taking issue with some of the kind of this happiness movement. And and yeah. I'm I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that about how do we, you know, we all hear we should be positive. <laughs> so, yeah. um yeah. how do we navigate that? Cuz that's that's a big I think it's a big piece here. I think it's a really, really important piece, and it's actually at the crux of our ability to be resilient and thrive. We live in a world that effectively tells us that when things are going wrong, 
just fix it. Just be positive. Just be happy. And what it does is it takes away from our capability to recognize that our emotions contain really important signals to us that we as human beings have evolved as evolutionary creatures to have difficult emotions and that so often those emotions are there because they enable us to navigate our world effectively. So when we are just cutting out or avoiding things in the service of happiness, we are failing to learn from our experience to adapt and adjust, to get that new job, to have a difficult conversation, and so on. And so what can happen is we focus on happiness, but we know from the research that that actually over time leads to greater levels of unhappiness because it's not allowing people to show up to their experience in an honest way, learn from it, and to move forward. Well, and indeed, that's the first step that you advocate for in the book is showing up. And instead of ignoring difficult thoughts and emotions or overemphasizing positive thinking, you write, facing into your thoughts, emotions, and behaviors willingly with curiosity and kindness. And I, I love the words there, and I love what you're saying about this. And, I, and I'm also struck, like, what, like you've said, of how challenging this is for leaders and especially even in our society. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you work with people, what do you find that's a good practical step for someone to begin to think about? How do I start to show up and not to just ignore those difficult thoughts? A really important part of showing up is instead of trying to push difficult emotions aside or difficult experiences, there's change going on or you're upset about something or you're Feel like your coworkers not pulling their weight, instead of trying to push those aside, is to rather notice them. And what I mean by noticing them, you'd ask the question of what is the simplest thing to do? Um, the simplest thing to do is actually what is completely at odds with our culture. Our culture tells us that when we upset about something or when we worried about something, we should try to fix it immediately, push it aside, be positive. Whereas the simplest and least expected thing is to do nothing, to simply be able to notice. I'm noticing that I'm feeling really upset. I'm noticing that I'm starting to shut down in this meeting. I'm noticing the thought that I may as well keep quiet. I'm noticing the urge to stop contributing. So when we start to stop fight, having a fight with ourselves as to whether we should or shouldn't be experiencing something, and we rather simply just notice it with compassion and curiosity, we move into a space where we can actually be with that thing, learn from that thing, and become more effective. And in the book, I talk very practically about what that looks like. But you had said, what is a simple thing? And a very simple thing is to end any struggle that we have with ourselves about whether we should or shouldn't feel something. Uh, I love that. That's so, it, 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 it is really simple, not necessarily easy, but, but simple to start to recognize in ourselves. And I noticed that Adam Grant was talking about your book, and one of the things he said is, 
it's one thing to feel an emotion. It's another thing to have control over it. And I think that's part of what what you're saying here. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that distinction, that that feeling an emotion, but but then also having some control over it. So absolutely. So in emotional agility, I talk about this idea that emotions are data, not directions. And therein is something really critical. That firstly, emotions contain data. So, so often beneath our difficult emotions are signposts of things that we value. For example, um, if we upset because our idea was stolen at work, that's a sign that you care about issues of equity and fairness. Or if you're feeling guilty as a parent because you feel like you are spending so much time distracted by your phone out of work, and so you're feeling guilty, that guilt is a signpost to you that you care about being a present and connected parent. So emotions contain data, but they are not directions. In other words, just because I feel guilty doesn't mean that I should be guilty. And just because I'm angry that my idea was stolen at work doesn't mean that I need to have it out with my boss. Sometimes our emotions will tell us to do things that are not going to serve us. And so we can say, you know, who's in charge here, the thinker or the thought? Who's in charge? The emotion or me, the person who can feel many emotions. Yeah, indeed. And I think this relates right to the the second step of, of stepping out. And you write that that really involves detaching from and observing your thoughts and emotions and see them for what they are, just thoughts and just emotions. And I love this analogy you give in the book of um, essentially it's learning to see yourself as a chessboard uh, filled with possibilities rather than any one piece on the board confined to certain preordained moves. That's a really, it just strikes me as a really mature way to look at this, right? This is like looking at the full picture versus looking at those, those individual moves. Yeah, and we've all had this experience. So we've all had an experience where, for example, we're really angry with a customer service agent because they've lost our phone bill or they've gotten the phone bill wrong for the 33rd time. And we finally get hold of a customer service agent on a telephone, for example, and we are about to have it out with them. And then we've all had that experience where that little voice goes off in our head that says, Susan, you know, if you have it out with this customer service agent, he or she will conveniently lose your file. <laughs> or he or she will. Co- so we've all had this. And in psychology, we call this the ability to take a meta view. So it's not that you're ignoring your emotions. You are noticing your emotions, but almost from an observer perspective. So we all know that experience of both being able to feel the emotion. So we're not trying to avoid it or pretend that we're happy. To feel the emotion, but also notice it for what it is. You know, I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I should just shut down. I'm noticing the urge to avoid this feedback. I'm noticing the emotion that is telling me to just have it out with my boss because I'm angry. But I also am able to create space in noticing that emotion, that emotion is the emotion of anger but I, as a person, can choose not to have it out, or I can choose to have a conversation in a different way. So really what we're starting to cultivate is a critical, critical skill set. It's fundamental because when you are a piece 
on the chessboard. You're angry or you're frustrated or you're feeling stressed. Often what we do is we just see one solution. You know, I'm stressed, so I've got to delegate or I'm stressed, so I've just got to give up my job. But when we can start noticing our thoughts, emotions and experiences for what they are, thoughts, emotions and experiences, we start creating a broader perspective where we say, okay, I'm noticing that I'm feeling stressed. I can see that stress for what it is. And now I'm not so immersed in and attached to the stress. I can start coming up with different solutions. And some of those solutions are going to work better than others. You become the chessboard. Yeah, it's such a powerful analogy. And it's funny you bring up the customer service agent. My, my wife and I, uh, her aunt is going through some difficult times. And so we've taken over helping her with her finances. And I've been through this situation a couple of times in the last few weeks with the, you know, the frustrating, you know, calling the customer service agent. And I find myself sometimes like when I get really angry, like when I'm good, I'll think to myself, this person has no idea. <laughs> Like they're walking into your situation you've been angry about for weeks and they have no yeah. idea what's coming. And and like you said, when when we're able to at least, we may still feel the emotion, but we're able to logically like think about that, like detach from the situation a bit, it does make it so much easier easier and the result is so much better. And I, I think this is one of the one of the practices I, I know you you talk about a lot and I've heard some of our other guests talk about too as far as the practice of labeling our emotions. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that because I think that's that's a that's a really key point here too. Absolutely. So very often when people are going through difficult situations, even a situation that's an everyday difficult situation, for example, feeling stressed. What we know is that there's this frequent devolving to one word to describe what the experience is. So for example, the leader comes home from work and the spouse says, how was your day? And the person says, it was stressful. And then the next day, oh, it was stressful. And the next day, it was stressful. But there's a world of difference between being stressed versus disappointed versus angry versus frustrated versus I thought my career would be so different than it is. Now, as an executive coach, if I was working with someone who said, I'm just stressed, and I took that at face value, I might work with that person around delegation. But if we dug a little bit deeper and actually what was going on for the person was, I'm so sad because I thought that my career would be so different than what it is, and I feel a sense of loss of the last five years of my life, the conversation would be a completely transformed conversation. You know, Mm, we wouldn't be talking about delegating. And so what's really interesting is that so often as leaders and in organizations, we use very quick words to describe what it is that we are feeling, what it is that we're experiencing. Yet what the research shows is that when individuals become more nuanced, you know, what are two other options other than stress that I'm feeling, when people become more nuanced in describing what it is that they are going through, the power of that is enormous. What it does is it helps people to firstly get a handle on the situation better. It enables them to uh, set goals better. And this labeling actually activates people's, what is called our readiness potential in our brains. 
this idea that when you start recognizing, oh, it's my career, it's not about delegation, then what it enables you to start doing is to start planning and shifting and adapting. And of course, as human beings, we need to be able to be agile. We need to be able to be adaptive. So this idea of labeling, while it again can seem fairly abstract, is a critical skill in our resilience and in our long-term well-being. One thing that is coming up for me as I'm hearing you say this is just the coaching point for all of us to get beyond whatever one word we default to. And I'm guessing for most of us, we probably do default to a word (laughs) or two that we use to describe when things are not going as well. For me, I was thinking, as you were saying, uh, the word is tired. I'll tend to say I'm tired, but I don't really sometimes articulate or even for myself, like label what that really means, what's really going on. So I think one of one of the things we can all do is just become conscious of what that word is for us and then challenge ourselves to think, you know, what is maybe a word that's better that describes and articulates what we're going through? Is that is that helpful? Absolutely. I think that's so powerful. And to use the example that you give, you know, tired might be I'm not sleeping well at night, or tired might be I'm giving out so much during the day that I'm not doing enough that's generative and creative. Or tired might be, I am simply saying yes to so much. Mm -hmm. And so even with that very, very simple word, if you just dig a little bit deeper as to what that word means, you can start getting beyond this thing of, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired every day. And you start moving into a space of what does this mean? And how can I cultivate more of what is necessary in my life for me to have a shift around this particular tired. So yeah, it's a very simple but very powerful strategy. But again, we live in a culture that tells us just be happy and where you feel so-called negative emotions, discomfort or sadness or anger, oh, those are bad emotions, let's just do away with them. You know, if we just spend a little bit more time showing up to ourselves, we can generate so many critical and profound changes in the way we love, live and lead. And you spoke a few minutes ago about the importance of values, and that lines up really well with the the third step, which is walking your why. And you write here that your core values provide the compass that keeps you moving in the right direction, rather than being Abstract ideas, these values are the truth path to willpower, resilience, and effectiveness. I love what you're saying here. And and one of the things I also am present to is I I know a lot of times when I talk with leaders about values and core values, that's just a that's a term that's kind of uh, nuanced and squishy for a lot of people. Like, you know, what does that mean? How do I really get clear on what my values are? And I'm wondering how that that shows up for you, Susan, as far as what you've seen that works with helping leaders just to get better at being aware of what the values are and and then how that lines up with emotional agility. So let me give you an example. Imagine you have got a very difficult situation at work and you need to give someone feedback. But at the same time, you are feeling anxious about giving them the feedback. You're avoidant of the feedback. So it's a very, very common thing that a lot of people experience. And then you start saying, well, I'm just not going to give the feedback or, oh my goodness, I have to give this feedback. That's going to be difficult, but I have to do it. 
So all of that, either avoiding the feedback or feeling like I have to do it, creates a sense of struggle. The avoidance is I'm just going to not do the thing. And of course, then the situation doesn't change. But also doing something because you feel like you have to do it creates resentment. It often leads the conversation to happen, but in a way that is not really fruitful and so on. So imagine as a leader, you have a sense that what is really important to you as a person is fairness that fairness is fundamental to you. And you have that value front of mind when you're thinking about this difficult situation. You can start asking yourself questions like, how fair is it to the individual if I don't give them the feedback? How fair is it to the rest of the team if I don't give this individual their feedback? How fair is it to me if I don't give the individuals the feedback? And what you start being able to do is start instead of saying, well, I have to do this thing and I'm going to grit my way through it, articulating and understanding what values you bring to that situation can be enormously, enormously freeing because it enables you to cultivate what I call a want to goal, the idea that you are giving the feedback and the feedback is not something driven by obligation, but it's driven by your values. Step four, you call moving on and you say small deliberate tweaks to your mindset, motivation, and habits in ways that are infused with your values can make a powerful difference in your life. The idea is to find the balance between challenge and competence so that you're neither complacent nor overwhelmed. You're excited, enthusiastic, and invigorated. And I think this is, you mentioned a few minutes ago about the the have-to mindset, and you make a distinction in your work on the have-to versus the want-to goals. Say more about that, because I think that's that's really, um, that, I think it's really powerful. So, yeah, I mean, so often in our lives and in our work, we crawl into stories. You know, we crawl into the, I have to be on dad duty, or I have to go to this meeting or I have to give a person feedback. And what we know from the the science of willpower and the science of how we create real change in our lives is that when people have have two goals, a have two goal is a goal that is driven out of a sense of obligation or very often out of shame. So, for example, if we think about uh, health habits, people might have a have-to goal of, I have to lose weight because my wife's at me, or I have to lose weight because my doctor's told me that if I can't lose weight, I'm going to die. Um, So, a have-to goal is a goal that is driven often extrinsically. It's often an external goal, and it's often driven by a sense of shame and obligation. A want-to goal is a goal, on the other hand, that is truly connected with and infused by your values. So if we take the same goal of weight loss, a have-to goal might be, I have to because my wife is at me. A want-to goal might be, I really want to lose this weight because I want to see my children grow up. Hmm. It's the same goal 
but the one is driven by obligation and the other is driven by a true sense of what's important to you, you know, in this case, your family. Now, if you look at this distinction between have to goal and want to goal, what we know is that have to goals are less likely to be sustained. So people who have a have to goal become resentful. When you go to that refrigerator and you're trying to lose weight with a have to goal, all you see is the chocolate cake in the refrigerator. You don't see anything else. Um, and we know that have to goals actually ramp up temptation and take away from our ability to create real change. Now, in contrast, a want to goal that's driven by a true sense of your values, who do you want to be as a leader in this situation? Want to goals ramp down temptation. You go to the refrigerator and you see the chocolate cake, but you see everything else there. And I use that as a metaphor for um, being able to be flexible and mindful and connected in the situation that you're facing. So again, let me go back to these examples, which is if you say to yourself, you know, I have to go to this meeting or I have to give someone feedback, you will most likely go to the meeting or give the feedback with a sense of resentment. You won't be as effective in it. And you'll pretty much be wanting to do the thing, grit your way out of it, and then get on with the rest of the day. But if you are able to connect in with what is it that's truly important to me, so fairness, for example, in the feedback, or you know, truly delivering something that is great for this client, and you are able to surface your want-to goal in the have-to, in the have-to story, it's incredibly freeing and liberating, and we know that that sustains true habit change in, in all areas of our lives. I've used health as an example, but in all areas. And just to be clear here, I'm not, when I talk about moving from a have-to goal to a want-to goal, I'm not talking about pretending or trying to, again, do stuff just in the service of trying to be happy. If you can't find a want-to goal, in a difficult situation at work, or if you can't find a want-to goal in your work itself, it may actually be time to move on or to make a real change. What I'm talking about instead is how so often we wrap ourselves in stories that don't necessarily serve us and are not true reflections of our values. And so if we can start to surface the want-to, it can be profound. Susan, a couple of years ago, I aired a podcast. Uh, the title was The Secret of Happiness. And the distinction I made in that episode was that secret is to have more get-tos than got-tos. And it's that's, that same thing you're talking about of, you know, I get to do this versus I've got to do that. And just changing that framework, the, the goal often is the same, the action's the same, but changing the mindset and the framework around it really makes a big difference as far as how we orient ourselves to our motivation for it. It's, it's fundamental. And coming back to that happiness discussion we were having earlier on, it's not that I'm anti-happiness, but rather that chasing happiness in of itself is not helpful. However, we know that when people pursue more want-to goals in their lives, that the byproduct of that is greater levels of well-being and happiness. Yeah, they, that's the irony is, you know, it's, it's almost that delayed, I don't, maybe not delayed gratification isn't even almost the right term here, or maybe it is, I don't know, but it's, it's, 
rather than seeking happiness in the moment and always looking for what's comfortable and what feels better and what is maybe easier to avoid, is we're making really deliberate decisions and practices in order to live happier lives overall by being present to the things that you're speaking about here and following these four steps. And I, I think that's just really a powerful way to to look at it and so much more effective in the long run for all of us. And um, and, and speaking of which, one of the, the resources that I'd like to uh, get on people's radar screen is the agility quiz that you have on your website. And I took it last night and I went through this quiz, Susan, and as I was going through it, I was thinking to myself, like, I'm so much better at that than I was before. And I was going through these different questions and it was asking me about how I handle different things. And I was like, oh, I'm, re- I'm better at that. I'm better at that. I'm better at that. And then I got to the end of the quiz and I got the results and I, I didn't look through them in detail yet, but it, it said it in a very nice way, but it basically said, yeah, well, you still got some work to do. <laughs> so it's kind of like wherever you go, there you are, I suppose. But I, I think well, that's a well, really good... you never good... know if you'd have done it a few years ago, you might have been very different. <laughs> Well, I, it might have just it might have just kicked me out a few years ago. So, um, I think it's a good starting point for folks to think about how to frame these four steps. And I was wondering if maybe you could say a little more about the quiz and how folks can access it because I think that's a really uh, I think it'd be really helpful. Yeah. So it's a free quiz. We've so far had uh, over fifty thousand people take it, and it's very brief. So it asks a couple of questions about how you typically deal with thoughts and emotions. And what it does is it gives a 10-page report that then gets emailed to you. And really, it's a quiz that focuses on these different aspects of emotional agility. So showing up, uh, stepping out, being able to create some distance, walking your wire, this framework of values and the importance of values, and it helps people to understand what their values are, and then moving on, how you create real values aligned habit changes. So if listeners are interested in that quiz, as I said, five minutes and it's a free quiz with a 10-page report, it's susandavid.com forward slash learn, L-E-A-R-N. Fabulous. I'm going to get the links to that in the show notes. We'll send it out in the weekly leadership guide this week as well. And Susan, I have one other question for you. And you know, Leaders are always learning, growing, and failing, as we've talked about in this conversation. What's something you hold true today that you didn't recognize or maybe believe five years ago? I think more than ever, I believe that the cultural conversation that is so much part of our workplace, which is, you know, be positive, be happy, and be goal-focused, can often sound really good, but that individually, it can actually undermine our resilience and undermine our adaptability. And I think I started to recognize this early on in the experience that I had with my dad and this teacher helping me to show up to the difficult experience. But I think it is this idea that so often we look for the the quick fix. And in looking for the quick fix, what we actually do is we we avoid discomfort in the short term, but we stop ourselves from thriving because we stop ourselves from moving to a space of growth and learning and adaptation, which is so much a part of who we need to be in the world. There's just so many examples in life of how the quick fix is not <laughs> the thing long term that's going to really support us. And Susan, I, I love the four-step model because I know that uh, if folks really connect with it genuinely and uh, take these things to heart, and not only in their thinking, but in their actions, it's really going to help them to 
build the kind of emotional agility that you talk about. So thank you so much for uh, your time and perspective and helping us to do this uh, much better. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm very, very grateful to be here. Susan David is the author of Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. Thank you so much, Susan. Those four steps again. Number one, showing up. Number two, stepping out. Number three, walking your why. And then finally, number four, moving on. And of course, as always, all of the resources we mentioned in today's conversation are going to be available on the website at the show notes. Of course, the best way to get access to those, though, is to get the weekly leadership guide. And that is one of the many benefits you get when you activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you go over there right now, you can set up your free membership. When you do, you'll get that Wednesday leadership guide in your inbox with the show notes and resources, as well as a number of other resources I've tracked down uh, for you during the week that I think will be really helpful to you. I know there's a lot of folks in our listening community that utilize those articles, stories, podcasts, I find, uh, not only for themselves, but to pass along to their teams internally. And you'll also get access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. And if you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. It is a composition of some of the best conversations on the show since it began airing back in 2011. You can access all of that by going over to coachingforleaders.com. The main page there, just get your information in. In about 20 seconds, you'll be up and running with all of that, plus a ton more, which you'll find out when you get access on the free membership. And uh, in addition, when you're online, go ahead and check out some of the past episodes from Coaching for Leaders that uh, will relate back to today's conversation. I'd encourage you to check out episode number 85 from about four years ago. Uh, I actually aired an episode by myself that was titled 10 Ways to Pick Yourself Up When You're Beaten Down. If you find yourself in that situation where you are stuck, if maybe you're beaten down right now and you're not sure how to get yourself out of that funk, we all get there. Uh, in episode 85, I detailed uh, the steps I've used in the past, and I found that I've worked for others in order to get us back on the horse as quickly as possible. And I'm I'm often uh, reminded by the leaders that I work with that it's it's not it's not if you're going to fall off the horse, it's not if you're going to get knocked over. That happens to all of us almost almost daily, or if not weekly. Uh, it, it's how fast you get back on. And that episode is really designed to get you thinking that way. So again, that's episode 85. Uh, you'll also find value in episode number 224. I had Jacqueline Farrington on the show. She talked about how to lead through uncertainty and change. We talked a lot about change in this conversation today, and Jacqueline provided a great framework for leaders, uh, not only for themselves, but for leading a organization and a team through that. That's episode 224. And then finally, episode 271, how to increase your conversational, how to increase, let me see if I can talk here, <laughs> episode 271, how to increase your conversational intelligence, something I should try when I'm reading these. Uh, Judith Glazer was on the show uh, talking about her book on the same topic, 
fabulous conversation. If you haven't heard it, it'll help you to build your conversational intelligence for sure. Have a fabulous week. You can access all of those at coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. And I look forward to seeing you next Monday. Take care.